in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have been seen with my I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we'll dismiss our school-age kids to the back. All the blue shirts and all the things. I did hear they had a a great time. I echo Jason's statements that uh, our adult sponsors that went deserve all the things. Um, Sainthood, gift cards, whatever we can give them. Um, It's Father's Day. I want to also just say happy Father's Day uh, to our fathers in here. I got a couple text this morning as I do uh, every year um, as a spiritual father to some. A lot of my former students who didn't have a dad around in the house, um, I get a text from them and just reminds me of the, uh, the spiritual fatherhood a lot, of, uh, a lot of us play in the lives of other people and uh, that's just such a, um, such a great thing. I've been on study break for, uh, for three weeks, and I'm excited to, to be back. Jason actually starts his study break tomorrow, um, so if you text him, he won't text you back. And uh, to be honest, if he texts me, I probably won't text you back either. Um, <laughs> keep texting. Eventually, eventually it'll, it'll stick. Um, <laughs> no truer words have ever been spoken. Um, We're continuing in John 8 today in this incredible passage. As we've walked through the book of John, we have taken a break uh, and we focused in on the I am statements and we covered those all the way uh, to chapter 15. And now we're going back to kind of hit these chapters we miss along the way. We'll be skipping chunks that we had covered in the the I am series. One of those is here in chapter 8. Jason uh, started chapter 8 last week um, with the the woman that had been caught in adultery and... um, it's a great, 
picture of the humility of Jesus in that passage. Uh, we're going to skip the I'm a lot of the world because we taught on that about two months ago. And so our focus uh, that Reynolds read today starts in verse 31. And uh, it's a pretty lengthy passage, a lot of stuff contained in here. Um, but some things I think are, are just right on time for us as, as, as God normally works. Um, would you pray with me? Um, you pray silently while I pray aloud. And would you ask God to speak to you through the teaching of his word? God, we love you and thank you for the truth. And it's how in your loving kindness that you give us the truth and you lead us to repentance, that you care for us. And uh, I pray today that the truth would have its work in our own hearts and our lives. It would produce fruit in us. Lord, I speak not of my own accord, but uh, from you, through your word. Would you help the seed of your word find fertile ground that it may do um, a radical change in our lives? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite movies uh, is Castaway. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It doesn't make many people's favorite movies top ten lists. It's my favorite, I think, uh, and uh, either one or two. And the first time I watched it, I didn't like it. Um, but then the second and third time, I really picked up on it, and it's kind of, it moves my heart in a way because it like tackles real life themes of um, overcoming difficulty, of resilience, of hope in the midst of tragedy, these kind of things. One of my favorite scenes is the very end. I think I have a little picture uh, on the screen. Um, this is the very end where the, you know, the lead character, Tom Hanks, who had worked for FedEx, went down in a plane crash, got uh, stranded on some remote island for several years, finally finds his way off the island, picked up by a ship, and he comes back to a life that's, uh, you know, is not what he has expected. And so the, the end of it ends with this little scene of, uh, of the character, Tom, in the middle of this crossroad trying to figure, figure out what, what direction he wants to go really for the rest of his life. And uh, it's a little more to it, but I think that sets up uh, kind of where we're at today. And I think the pandemic, the pressure of the pandemic, like brought things to the surface that we didn't know were there. Um, whether it's apathy or hatred or difficulty or whatever, prejudice, racism, it, it, it just kind of bubbled some things to the top. It, it forced you to quarantine with, with your family for a long time, and that was cool after a couple of days. And then, then you were like, man, I need a break from some of these people. It continued to kind of force things up. And now we have to determine what, what we're going to do next, what direction we're going to be headed in, where our ultimate trust and hope rests. I'm confident that what we have found in the church is a crisis of real discipleship. Christians are confused as of their identity. They've forgotten what the real battle is for their own heart and souls. They don't know the word of God. It's impossible to discover distinguish between the truth and the lies of our culture. We're what some have said that we are alert and oriented time zero. This is a 
term that first responders use uh, attempting to triage a situation after someone has taken a fall or hit their head on something. The highest level is known as alert and oriented times four. It describes most of us in this room in an everyday situation. We know who we are. We know where we are. We know what time it is. And we know what just happened. That's alert and oriented times four. But if someone suffers a fall or blow to the head, the first thing they lose is recent events. They're alert and oriented times three. And the last thing they ultimately lose is their identity. A person who has lost all levels of consciousness is said to be alert and oriented times zero. And I think it's the perfect spiritual analogy, and we've used it before, that we have no idea who we really are or why we're here or what's happened to us or why it's happened. Honestly, spiritually speaking, of the church at large, I think most of the time we're alert and oriented times zero. And it explains so much of today's passage. Jesus is speaking to some Jewish people who believed in him, it says in the verse before. We jumped in in verse 31, but if you'll go back to verse 30, it says, as he was saying these things, this is the light of the world passage, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. This group is intrigued and he's teaching with authority. He was inspiring. He was humble and confident. He was making some bold statements. And so many of the Jews are kind of getting around, you know, elbowing each other. Man, I really like this guy. This guy's speaking with authority. I believe what he's saying. And yet if you skip to the end of the passage, we didn't get to all of it even in the scripture reading. Skip down to um, verse 58. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. And Jesus played a little hide and seek with them. Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So we start with this like Jesus is the popular uh, uh, kid on campus and it ends with, okay, we're trying to take his life right now in the temple and what happened in between there is going to tell us a lot about what Jesus said and how they responded and if we're careful, I think it's going to tell us a lot about ourselves. Really just three points today. Um... And they all kind of uh, start with a W, which is not my style, but the warning, the way, and the weapon. So let's get into that to kind of give us a little more context of what's happening in the book of John. Jesus came on a rescue mission. The incarnation was essentially this military invasion and resolutely entrenched in the world, Satan made his position clear that he would not give up willingly. From the religious leaders to Pontius Pilate, he threw everything he had at Jesus, and it was just not enough. And Jesus is confronting this attitude, and he's going right at it. He says earlier in uh, chapter 8 and verse 12, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The warning. The warning for us today, the warning that we find from Jesus in this passage is that we are at war. Not with the Democrats or the Republicans, 
Not necessarily even with cultures, not with races or other countries, not even with our in-laws. Our enemy is the devil. And Jesus actually gets to this in the middle of that passage. If you go to verse 43, Jesus reasoning with them saying, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot hear, bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. This is partly why we start with this idea of alert and oriented time zero, is we don't know who we are, our identity in Christ. We don't know why we're here. We don't know that we're in a battle. We're up against something powerful. And just from this passage, we meet the enemy of our souls. From this passage alone, he gives us a little description of what we're up against. Says he was a murderer from the beginning. Says he speaks lies and is the father of all lies. We see that he opposes the word of God and actually opposes all truth. That he hardens your mind and heart as to keep you from being able to hear or understand truth. That he uses deceit and division and accusation as his main weapons against us. When you read scripture as a whole, it's pretty evident that what we have here is a tale of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. This is why the gospel of John starts out with the word coming and the word was light. And in him there was no darkness at all. And that the darkness would not overcome him. First John, John's epistle that he would later write, chapter 3, verse 8, says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The very reason that he came on this rescue mission was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. And Jesus' life and ministry showed that Satan's kingdom was crumbling and the kingdom of God was overcoming it and would one day obliterate the kingdom of darkness altogether. God has this unstoppable and reclaiming vision of the creation in Christ through his life, death, resurrection, and return. Jesus has secured and set in motion this full restoration of fallen creation that will culminate one day in a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus' reign will one day banish all the brokenness in the world and to completely renew the creation from top to bottom. And this is the vision of God for the world. He's got this great vision, this great destiny plan for the people of God, this staggering vision of the future where the knowledge of the Lord will cover the whole earth like the waters cover the sea, countless people who know and love God. People would have a renewed heart that would fully love what's truly lovely and from which all sin and corruption would be banished, that relationships would be transformed and healed so there's no division or discord among people or nations, a future where no one will suffer lack. There would be no poverty or suffering or sickness or injustice or oppression. Ultimately, death itself would be destroyed and banished, having no place in the world. This is the vision that God has, that he is bringing about every last enemy that would oppose this vision would become his footstool 
This is the beautiful and enduring ending, but the ending is already beginning. This is what Jesus started when he came. This is the rescue mission. He brought with him the kingdom of God, truly but not fully. God's future had already broken into the present, but yet not completely taken over. His followers knew that they were intended to experience abundant life, and we'll get to that in a couple weeks, in increasing measure of what God would one day bring about to its fullness. And even Jesus taught his followers to pray this way. Pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, I want you to hear the warning that you have an enemy of your soul. And what he wants to do is to divide and to distract and ultimately destroy. And we see these things going on all the time. Dave spent an hour this morning talking to our men about the strategy of the enemy. And we don't need to be fearful of the strategy of the enemy, but we do need to be aware of it. Isn't that what Peter said? That we are aware of the enemy's schemes. That our battle's not against flesh and blood. So if you fought with your spouse on the way over here, the battle's not against them. Or if you're Kids are angering you today, hopefully not today. The battle's not against them or your neighbors or your coworkers or the people in a different political perspective. Your battle's not against the people. Your battle is not in the flesh and blood, Paul would later say in the book of Ephesians, but against the principalities of darkness. And here's how I have seen the enemy come against me. Through an offended spirit, which leads to division, first of all. I've seen him come at me to doubt that God is good, to doubt the word of God. Isn't that what he did in the very beginning? Did God really say? You know what I've seen just in even our own church over the past 18 months? You know how he's really come against, you know his main weapon has been apathy. And we're just not that impressed with Jesus anymore. We fill our minds with all the things of the world all week and all the culture that gets its talons in us. And we come here and we cross our arms and we just say, you know, let's get this over with quick, Pastor. There's no awe of God and what he's doing. For many of us, there's no walking with him. There's no deep reverence. As you see in Acts chapter 2, as they met together, they were full of awe. This like awesome picture of God and what he was doing. There was this closeness and nearness to him. Paul would later say that we're fighting the good fight of faith and it is a fight. And a lot of times the thing that we're fighting against is apathy in our own hearts and souls. We're not exempt from this. Paul begins his second letter to Timothy, that young pastor, with this reminder, remember the gospel, fan into flame, that with with what once was birthed in your heart, this desire to love God and to serve God and to walk with God, and yet ministry and the disappointment of church people had just, his heart had just grown cold and apathetic. And if if we can be real honest... If we're not careful, we'll let the people of God in their own sin and error define who God is to us 
And it would lead us to a cold heart for him. This is the warning. Then there's the way. I love this. The guys actually took out the stones at the very end when Jesus says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus, the way, Jesus is our liberator. He has come to bring light into darkness, to speak truth into chaos. He's come to liberate those that are in bondage. He's come to offer adoption and sonships to those who are, were once slaves to sin. And he uses that word. This is that Greek word, ego, I, me again. I am. It's the same words that were used in the Old Testament that was translated into Greek of what God said his name was in the burning bush. If you remember that, we've gone back to that a couple times. And as soon as he said that, it angered them to such an extent that they started to try to stone him. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself. Jesus is our ultimate liberator. With this one dramatic phrase, Jesus told them that he was the eternal God, existing not only during the time of Abraham, but into eternity past. This is the third time in this chapter, chapter 8, that Jesus uses that phrase, I am, in verse 24, in verse 28, and again in verse 58. And using the phrase, I am, Jesus used this clear divine title, belonging to Yahweh alone, and was interpreted as such by all the Jewish people of this day that they recognized that Jesus was saying, I am creator God. When Colossians says that all things that were made were made through him, this is what Jesus is saying, I am the I am. Before Abraham even came into existence, I am eternally existent. Using the language that only God could use. I am. The way is through Jesus. And the weapon, which we'll spend the rest of our time this morning on, the weapon that God gives to us, the only weapon that God gives, even uh, in Ephesians 6, when talking about putting on the spiritual armor, that we would wield the sword of the word of God with prayer. The word of God is our greatest weapon. That's what we see here at the beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered, but we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone how is it you say that you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. The word of God, our greatest weapon. We've talked about this before. This is such a powerful verse. And I want to look at it that that phrase, if you, and I don't know if you underline in your Bible, you would underline a circle that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Remember, the Jews already believed him, but they didn't believe in him. 
And there's a difference. What Jesus is doing is separating this like cognitive mental ascent to this really faith posture of believing in someone. And that's why he says, if you continue in my word, if you abide in my word or continue to obey my teachings, you are truly my disciples. So Jesus is addressing those who said they believe and yet they do not believe. Clearly they were inclined to think that what Jesus was saying was true, but they weren't prepared to yield to him the far-reaching allegiance that real trust in Jesus implies. And this is the most dangerous state. This is where the Gospel of Matthew talks about how many people in the last day are going to stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, I did all all of these things in your name. I healed people in your name and I cast out demons in your name. Talk about spiritual authority. I had spiritual authority in your name and Jesus is going to respond to them. You remember this, depart from me for I never knew you. This is why this is such a dangerous state, friends, to have a cognitive ascent and to believe all the things on one side and on the other side, have yielded the whole of your life to him. To say, Lord, whatever you want, whatever you say, I trust you, I'm following you, I am your disciple. And that's what's being, that's the line that's being drawn in the sand by Jesus. And this is where I think the church has gotten it wrong a lot. From many pulpits, specifically in the West, we've not preached a real gospel. If you abide in my word, Jesus here is defining what real discipleship looks like, what it means to be a fan of his or to be a follower of his. This Greek word is, is such a strong word too. I mean, we could, we could spend an hour just talking about this, this word. The word abide or to hold on to or to continue in, maybe it's in your translation means to embrace or to live with, to obey, to believe this and not that, to do this and not that. One theologian described it this way, this phrase, welcoming it, I think I have it on the screen, being at home with it, living with it so continuously that it becomes part of the believer's life, a permanent influence and stimulus and every fresh advance in goodness and holiness. That's what he's saying, abide in. If you abide in my word, the new contemporary version says, if you continue to obey my teaching. He's defining discipleship and he's also showing us our greatest weapon on the way to freedom is submission to him and following his word. Whether it makes sense or not. Has the Lord ever asked you to do something that didn't make sense to you? to give something, to say something. There's so many times I don't understand, nor do I want to do what God's word tells me to do. How about forgiveness? I'll forgive once or twice, 70 times seven. How about bless those who persecute you? How about love your enemies? 
you start reading through the Beatitudes and they look nothing like the church that we probably have experienced in the past. This is what wholehearted yielding to the leadership of Jesus actually looks like. And I think this gives us a few ideas about what real discipleship is. First, real discipleship is an ongoing process. There's no such thing as instant instant maturity. If you continue in the word, if you abide in the word, there's a lot of people who have interacted with the word. There's a lot of people who like some parts of the word. If you continue and abide, continue to obey, to welcome it, to be at home with it. There's no such thing as instant maturity. It's a journey of incremental steps. Think about your kids growing up. You were changing diapers one day and now you're buying them a car. And then you're going to send them to college. Then they're going to have their own kids. They didn't, they didn't go from you changing their diaper to them driving a car the next day. No, it was a, praise the Lord, it was a journey of incremental steps. Discipleship is an ongoing process. So Romans 12 talks about this idea of being transformed. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Where we get that word metamorphosis, where we, we are completely transformed. We use the word metamorphosis to describe right, what the caterpillar to the butterfly and what a change that is. In the same way, there's a supernatural change in the life of every believer where we, where, where, where we even as Jason said in Ephesians 2, but God, we were once this and God has transformed us, supernaturally transformed us. And we were bent in towards ourselves and serving our own needs. And yet, when God did this work in us, then we, we respond and worship back to him and investing our life into others. Do you see the incredible work? It's an ongoing process. And what that means is, one, we should be growing. We should look a little bit more like Jesus today than we did yesterday or last week or a decade ago. It drives me nuts, those people, when they start to, when I say, well, tell me what God's doing in your life, and they go back to their original conversion, and nothing has happened in their life since then. No, that's not what it means to walk with God. Maybe in your own journey, there was this resisting stage where you didn't want to give in, and then there was this accepting stage, this changing stage, and then then it moves to this adolescent stage. You know, junior high Christians. It means we got to have so much grace with other people. You get in this place as a new Christian where you just think you know everything. You're just kind of annoying sometimes. Thinking your way is the right way, that adolescent stage. And then you move on to this growing and maturing stage and ultimately to this reproducing stage where you're investing in the lives of other people and then the maximizing stage where you've discovered your spiritual gift and you're serving the Lord and, and, and you're investing in other people and you're seeing an exponential return on the, on the investment that you're making and then you see the celebrating stage. So what we see in Paul's life at the very end. He's saying, man, my life has been poured out as a drink offering. And he's just celebrating and thanking and encouraging all of those that have been part of that journey. Discipleship's an ongoing process. Two, discipleship is measured in obedience and not knowledge. These Jews had the knowledge. They had the knowledge of the Old Testament fully. Many of them, Pharisees, had memorized the first five books of the Torah. 
But additionally to that, they had been following Jesus. They believed. It says twice in there in verse 30 and verse 31. As he was saying these things, many believed him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Discipleship is measured in obedience and not knowledge. That's why he says, if you abide in my word or if you continue in my word. If you. Measured by obedience, not knowledge. A lot of people know a lot but don't obey a lot. People love the second part of this verse, the truth part. We'll know the truth, and the truth is going to set us free. But that's not the whole verse. He says, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And or then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will only be really free if you choose to position yourself under the rule and reign of Jesus. You will only be really free if you live under his authority. You will only be free if you position yourself within my constraints, Jesus says. Now, this doesn't sound like freedom in our postmodern minds because freedom to us is life with no restraints. But think about this with me for a minute. Is that really, is that really freedom? When someone tells us what to do, there's something inside of us that just kind of just rears its ugly head and say, you can't tell me what to do. A lot of time it's when it comes to freedom, real freedom is not the absence of constraint. Real freedom is choosing the liberating constraints. Let me use this for an example, my dad for an example. My dad had a heart condition and diabetes. And I was with him at the doctor one time when the doctor said, his blood sugar's out of the, out of the roof. Larry, if you continue to eat this way, it's not going to go good for you. And so now he has the choice. Do I eat the apple pie with ice cream and enjoy the freedom in the moment to eat whatever I want? Do I choose that freedom or do I choose the freedom of a longer, healthier life? You see, freedom is is the choice. And you want to choose the freedom, not with the absence of constraint. Real freedom is choosing the liberating constraint. It's choosing the easy yoke that Jesus would say. Freedom is a strategic loss of certain freedoms in order to gain greater freedom. Am I making sense? If you want real freedom, you submit your life to Jesus. I could take a fish out of the water and put him on this stage, and I could say, fish, do whatever you want to. And that fish is only going to flap until it dies. Or I can say, fish, I'm going to confine you to the water. That's the restraint. Now you go where you want to. And the fish comes fully alive because he was made for the water. Now listen. We were made to live in relationship with our creator God. That's how we were made to live with him, to walk with him. That's what we see Adam and Eve in creation, walking with him in the cool of the day and vo- enjoying fellowship with, with the trinity of, who, of the Godhead. Isn't that incredible? And to work without thorns and sweat. Can you imagine life without sweat? I just don't even know. And sin entered the picture and it fractured our relationship with God. And this is the invasion that Jesus came back behind enemy enemy lines to 
to pay for our sin, to reconnect us to God, to reconcile us to our purpose, to give us a real destiny. But that is only lived as we submit under the rule and reign of Jesus. He made us. And he has the right to give us a, a user manual. You know when you go buy a car, you open the glove box and there's a user manual this thick. Anyone ever read the user manual? Maybe a page? Like, what does this button do? Um, Whoever made the car has the right to put the user manual. And it says things like, hey, don't put water in the gas tank, bro. It's not going to go well. This is not going to work if you put water in the gas tank. This is not going to work if you put jello in the, in the oil. It's not going to work that way. There's, there's a way that the car is supposed to work. And if you don't submit to the user manual, it's just going to be a really big paperweight. And this is... This is what Jesus is saying in this verse to us. It's what he's saying to the Jews. It's what he's saying to us today. You want real freedom? Freedom comes on the other side of submission to my authority, of continuing in my word. Discipleship is measured in obedience and not knowledge. Every teenager goes through this. As they mature into manhood or womanhood, there's this like, it gets more and more tense the older they get. You know, they get a phone and a car. They think they know everything and there's this like battle of the minds, right? And that little thing inside of them wants to push the, push the gate down. I want to go and do it. And then sometimes we let them and then they make a mess of their life or they're scared and they want to come back. There's... There's this thing, even with this rebellious thing within us that, that, that doesn't want to submit to the way of God. And God in his loving kindness says, Luke, this is the best thing for you, man. I made you. I know how you were meant to live. I know how it's supposed to work. Thirdly, and we'll wrap it up, discipleship is based on God's words and not human ideas. And this is the real argument that they are having with Jesus. They accuse Jesus of being a demon. In verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan, which he was not, and you have a demon? <laughs> you ever start insulting people and you don't even know how to use insults correctly? This is what they're doing. They're just pulling things out of the hat. Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jew said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he's never going to taste death. Are you greater than my father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But if my father glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him and I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old. 
How have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Three times in that passage we just read, it talks about Jesus himself saying, I keep my father's word. Discipleship is based on God's word and not human ideas. They couldn't get it. They, they were boasting in their resume because their father, ancestral father, was Abraham. They thought that that gave them the path to relationship with God. And Jesus says, no, it doesn't. There's something more. And the only way to that relationship with God is through me. If you abide in my words, Jesus says, you're truly my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Discipleship is based on God's word of conforming our mind and our heart to God's word. We read God's word and it's offensive. And it says things that are really offensive to our culture. And we have a decision. Do I agree with myself or do I agree with the word of God? It's what Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say. You have to preach the gospel to yourself. You have to side with God's word against yourself. Many of us have been trained to think that the Bible is an oppressive book, the loss of freedom, but it is actually the opposite of that. Regarding reading it in our modern context raises questions and suspicion about life and its authority. Is it really good news? But time and time again, we read that celebration is the response to the revelation of the word of God. One of the clearest accounts of this I was reading this this week in my just devotion time is in Nehemiah. You remember Nehemiah goes, he rallies the, 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 uh, the people of Israel in Jerusalem. The walls are broken down. They build the walls back up. They finally get most of the walls about, uh, built back up and they're going to have a worship service to dedicate it. In chapter 8 and verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day the is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. It had been a while since they had heard the words. And so in the passage right before this, Ezra gets up and he opens the scroll and he begins to read the words of God and they were like honey on their lips. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and not to be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites, this is the youth pastors, calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing. This is the verse right here. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The reading of God's word and the revelation of God's word led to great rejoicing. When's the last time you left a Bible study with great rejoicing? Or the last time you left the teaching of God's word with great rejoicing. Or in your quiet time in the mornings of hearing from God, you wake everybody up in the house with great rejoicing. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. They rejoiced 
at the rediscovery of the word of God. It was not the sound of weeping and despair, not the sound of lamentation and regret, but the sound of celebration. Because knowing the truth and the truth giver led to real freedom. Knowing the father led to their sonship and adopted into the family. We read this verse. Let me come back to it as we kind of position our mind and heart for communion. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. This is why this is such a great reminder of communion. That the slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides forever. Slavery to sin is the worst kind of slavery because there's no escape from ourselves. Unless the son comes, the son must set us free. And the Son of God sets us free and brings us into the household of God. The slave has no permanent footing in the house. He may be dismissed or sold. But the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. If we are set free from our slavery to sin and set free by the Son of God, we are set free to abide with Jesus in his word of being his disciple, then we're going to be free indeed. Having the true freedom. And I love this in communion. This is what we're reminded of every week as we take communion. That we're not a slave, but a son, a daughter. That God has adopted us into his family through the work of his son. And given us a gift of faith that we have placed our faith and hope in him. Not just to believe things about him, but to trust him and to yield our life to him. And in a way, communion reorients us to our identity in him. To the realness of our sin that forced the God of heaven to die for us in our place. But also our communion with him. Isn't it interesting that this is one of the ordinances that Jesus says, hey, when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. It does, it's more about us for being reminded of our identity than it is us honoring him. As we take the juice and we take the bread that we're reminded that we are God's part of God's family. Let me pray and then we'll give you time. God, thank you for the gift of your grace. Thank you for your word. I pray even in this room, Lord, that you'd be working in the lives and hearts of us. There'd be some today that would take a real step from just mental believing in the things to yielding our lives to you. Maybe there's others of us who've been just waylaid by the enemy. We've been taken out. We're discouraged. We're depressed. We're beat up. We've got real wounds to show. And Lord, you would want to do the work of healing today in us. Many of us maybe have bought the lie of the enemy. As Jesus even says of him, everything he says is a lie. He's the father of all lies. Lord, would your truth replace those lies in our minds and hearts? Some of those lies we heard at such an early age, they've been lodged in our heart and soul 
for decades. But Holy Spirit, with the, the scalpel of your word, you begin to expose the lie and insert the truth. I pray that that work would be happening even today. Others in this room, Lord, we've been, it's been a tough year. They're fighting a good fight. I just pray blessings on them. Lord, would you continue to fill them with your spirit? Would you continue to put fire in their bones? To continue to fight this good fight, to live in freedom, to walk in truth. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.